Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you're interested in updates on longevity, sexual health, erectile dysfunction and testosterone, heart health, benign prostatic enlargement, or BPH, the men's cancers, prostate and testes, and metabolic syndrome, with particular attention to obesity and the new obesity drugs, then you will want to tune in to the next three episodes of the original Guide to Men's Health. For our upcoming episode, we will highlight two presentations which occurred on October 25th. The event was titled Real Talk on Men's Health. We brought together experts to speak about these particular subjects. The audience felt that these presentations were truly top of the line. I think you'll find the same. So for this coming episode, you will hear longevity, living better and longer, and sexual health, erectile dysfunction, and testosterone. Stay tuned for our next two episodes for the remainder of the presentations. Also, we'll begin this month's episode with an update on an effort to create a state commission on boys and men. We have a prior episode on creating a state commission of boys and men in Washington State, and why it's so important. I'd like to give you an overview of a campaign for the House Bill 1270. I would like to introduce Joe Cook and Blair Daly. Joe is a manager at Boeing and a volunteer youth leader. Blair coordinates transportation programs for nearby city government. He also founded and leads Washington Initiative for Boys and Men, WIBM, is working to build support, both among the public and lawmakers, to establish a state commission on boys and men. Let's welcome Blair and Joe to tell you about this groundbreaking effort. I'm Blair Daly. Yeah, and I'm Joe Cook. And I also want to say thank you again, Mr. Rich, uh, for the wonderful introduction. And thank you all for your time here tonight. So we carry out advocacy for improving the well-being of Washington's boys, male youth, and men. And that includes advocating for the creation of the nation's first state-level commission focused on improving the lives of males. So the proposed commission has five focus areas, and one of those is the physical and mental health of boys and men. 
the one pager for House Bill 1270 that you were given when you came in, we have more out in the lobby, that lists the other focus areas. Yeah, so let's take a step back and discuss why we believe advocacy for boys and men is even necessary. First, it's important to understand that there's a range of issues today where boys and men in particular are struggling. For example, we know that males are 77% of the completed suicides in the state of Washington. They're 70% of the unsheltered homelessness. 68% of people who die from drug overdoses. 66% of alcohol abuse deaths. 60% of high school dropouts. And 40% of college university students. And these are just a sample of the numbers that show some real disparities, inequities, male gender gaps. Whatever we call them, something is going on with our boys and men. Boys and men are half the population, and their problems ultimately impact all of us. Everyone has a son, a dad, a brother, a grandfather, a partner, or a male friend who means a whole lot to them. Due to these disparities and concerns, it makes sense to me that we make it somebody's job to be concerned with improving the well-being of our male population. Wouldn't it be great for policymakers to have a group of people they could turn to who have credibility and expertise on the needs and problems of our boys and men? That is exactly what a Washington State Commission on Boys and Men could offer. And a bill is already introduced in Olympia that would create such a commission. It's House Bill 1270. It didn't get a hearing last legislative session. We're hoping for a better outcome coming up in January 2024. Seven legislators have signed on as sponsors of the bill. Their names are listed on the one pager, but they include three men and four women, three Democrats, four Republicans. They represent rural, urban, and suburban districts, and they're some of the youngest in the legislature and some of the most senior. We are both constituents of Representative Amy Wallen, and she is one of the co-sponsors. Not only have seven members of the House of Representatives signed their name to the House bill, but there will be a companion bill introduced in the Senate this upcoming session by a member of the majority party. And so a scholar named Richard Reeves, who published a book last year called Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. We actually have some copies available for those who are interested and want to learn more about that up front. He actually, in that book, uh, when he was with the Brookings Institution, but later this year, actually launched a new think tank called the American Institute for Boys and Men. They're actually hosting their first ever event here in Washington coming up November 14th. And we'd love to see some of you guys come out and support that. I want to quote something he states there. Richard points out that we cannot leave a vacuum by neglecting boys and men's issues. If there are real problems in a society and responsible people don't acknowledge and address them, irresponsible people will exploit them. We're already seeing that happen. So how can you help us? For starters, our website, waboysandmen.org, and our contact info are on the slide and at the bottom of the one pager. Please contact us and we'll guide you with some options for how you can help advocate. Also, join our email list, which you can do on the website. Another idea, there's a growing list of nonprofit organizations that have publicly endorsed creating a commission on boys and men. They include the Washington State Urology Society, the Family Jewels Foundation, and several other men's health organizations, both locally and nationally. Also, suicide prevention groups, labor unions, and fatherhood organizations that provide services and training to dads. So if you're connected to an organization that could be a good fit for expressing support for this cause, see if you can help us get their permission to add that organization's name to the list of those that are endorsing the bill. Nonprofit groups, by the way, that have 501c3 status are allowed to endorse legislation with certain limits. 
You can also help with direct outreach to legislators. So that typically means emailing them. It could also mean asking for a meeting with them. And when you do so, you could bring in Joe or me or one of our other advocacy partners to that meeting. I'll share a couple names of specific legislators who are in really important positions when it comes to this particular bill. They are each the chair of a committee that needs to give a hearing to the bill for it to have a chance of passing. First is House Representative Bill Ramos, whose district includes Issaquah, Maple Valley, and Snoqualmie. And the other is Senator Sam Hunt, who represents Olympia, Lacey, and Tumwater. And so I also want to be clear, there definitely are government agencies and many nonprofit organizations that provide practical help to boys and men. But the statistics on outcomes for males aren't really getting any better. Often, what we're doing is addressing the symptoms of boys and men's problems. Some of these symptoms are harmful, not just to the individuals themselves, but to other people too. But we need to look more carefully and with true curiosity and open-mindedness at the causes of these problems. A commission on boys and men could do just that. Social movements and advocacy movements have a history of leaving out certain voices. That's one of the reasons why I'm so involved here with Blair at these early stages, to make sure all men are represented and their voices are heard on these type of issues. Some people say to us, a government commission focused on boys and men's problems? That'll never happen. Others look at the statistics and wonder why hasn't that happened yet. We ask for your help advocating. Thank you. We'll be hearing from Dr. Matt Caberlin, who will give us some insights into longevity. Dr. Caberlin is the CEO of Optispan, professor of pathology and affiliate professor of oral health sciences, UW School of Medicine. He's the former director of Health, Aging, and Longevity Research Institute and the Biological Mechanisms of Health, Aging training program. He's also the former co-director of the UW Nathan Schock Center of Excellence in the Basic Biology of Aging. Good evening, everyone. So it's a pleasure to be here. So I uh, spent about 20 years at the University of Washington, and my research was really focused on understanding the basic biology of aging. And then I've recently left the University of Washington to focus on starting up a company called Optispan, which is really about applying that knowledge to try to maximize what we call health span. And I'll get into that a little bit. So my framework really comes from the perspective of a scientist. So I'm a basic scientist at heart trying to learn a little bit more about medicine and, and application in the, in the real world. So I want to start, though, by kind of giving you a big picture perspective on overall health and really the way that I think, you know, in our culture, in the practice of medicine, and even really in the development of drugs by pharmaceutical companies and in biomedical research, the way that we tend to view health through the lens of disease and typically thinking about individual diseases in isolation. And one way to appreciate this is what we really typically do is we wait until people are sick and then we try to cure their disease. And in reality, we aren't successful at that most of the time and we end up treating the symptoms. And there's good reasons for that. I don't have time to really get into history and why that culture of disease evolved. But one of the consequences of that sort of individual disease in isolation perspective is we lose fact of or lose track of the fact that really most of the major causes of death and disability in the United States and other countries around the world have at their root a single greatest risk factor. And it's not the risk factors that you would typically think about. It's not how much you eat or whether you exercise or whether you smoke. It's how old you are. 
And so one of the implications of that is that if we can understand what that aging process is at a biological level in terms of genetics and environment, and there's no reason we can't, and hopefully that, if I convince you of nothing else tonight, hopefully I'll convince you of that. If we can do that, we have the potential to actually target that biology in a way that will slow the onset and progression of many, maybe all of the functional declines and diseases of old age. This is what I think of as 21st century medicine. And I just want to tell you that it is my hope and expectation that this will be a paradigm shift in the way we think about medicine away from reactive disease care, or at least not solely reactive disease care towards proactive healthcare. And I think that targeting the biology of aging will be an important part of that. So now before I get into that too much further, I do want to just take a step back and talk about some terms which you may have heard because they've sort of started to permeate collective consciousness a little bit. So chronological age is really easy, right? It's just how old you are, the length of time from when you were born till right now, okay? How many of you have heard of biological age? Okay, yeah. So this is something that if I'd asked that 10 years ago, probably nobody except for me in the room would have heard that term before. Started to get a little bit of attention and it conceptually, it's not so hard to understand. So one definition would be how old your cells and tissues are based on your function, their physiological function. And I want to try to sort of just look at this more from a conceptual level. And this is an analogy. I don't know if it's a great analogy, but one way to think about this is we can think about, you know, automobiles, right? So if you think about two guys, Bill and Tom, they both buy a Toyota Corolla in 2018. And Tom is a really good driver, uses the best grade of gasoline. He's always on top of the preventive and maintenance um, and never has had a single accident, right? So perfect driver. And then Bill is kind of the opposite, right? He's an aggressive driver, always buys the cheapest gasoline, ignores the oil light when it comes on, doesn't do any preventive maintenance, and he's had a bunch of accidents or, and fender benders. And so we can think about what these two cars might look like now, right? So these are five-year-old cars, and it might be something like this. And you can guess which is Bill and which is Tom, right? This isn't biological aging, but maybe it's like mechanical aging, right? But we all know people in our lives who appear to be younger or older from a health perspective or even visual perspective than their chronological age. You can take the analogy one step further, right? I guess you can guess which one is Tom, right? So this would be like comparison of the car to the person. So maybe gasoline and oil quality is like nutrition and exercise, which by the way, these lifestyle factors do impact the biology of aging. That's exactly why they have an impact on most age-related diseases simultaneously. And regular maintenance would be like preventative healthcare. And defensive driving would be like not doing risky stuff. It's gonna kill you. And maybe quality parts are like genetics, right? And genetics plays a role here. I certainly wouldn't wanna suggest that it's all about lifestyle. Although, you know, the estimates are that genetics are probably only maybe between 20 to 30% of longevity and maybe even less for this idea of health span for healthy longevity, but they are important. And then modern technologies, new things that are coming out, the latest and greatest Tesla, might be like the science of aging that is now starting to develop geroscience, what I call geroscience interventions, interventions that target the biology of aging. Okay, so I've beaten that analogy to death, but I think it, hopefully it's useful at helping you think about biological aging. And one, another way to think about biological age is to just think about the difference between different animals. And I love this example of dogs because everybody gets the idea that one human year 
is about seven dog years, right? And that's just the same as saying dogs age biologically about seven times faster than people do, although it's not linear. I really like this graphic. It's from a paper that was published in Cell Systems a few years ago. So it turns out that dogs are aging biologically faster than seven to one early in their life. And then post-developmentally and post-sexual maturation, that actually gets to be less than seven to one. It's maybe more like three dog years for every human year biologically. But again, hopefully this just helps you to appreciate that chronological time and biological time don't have to be the same. Okay, that's this idea of biological aging. And we've learned a lot about the biology of aging. So this is a graphic from a review article called The Hallmarks of Aging, which has pointed to 12 molecular processes that seem to be fundamental to the biology of aging. And again, I'm not going to take you through what they all are, but I do want you to appreciate that the science has matured a lot in the last couple of decades to the point now where we know what some of these molecular mechanisms are that influence the rate of biological aging. And the important part of that is as we start to understand these mechanisms, the opportunities arise to target those mechanisms either through lifestyle interventions or through medications or other ways to have an impact on the biology of aging. What I want to do now is I, I'm not going to show a ton of data, but I do want to give you sort of an example of a geroscience intervention, something that targets the, those hallmarks of aging, that targets the biology of aging. So this is a drug called rapamycin, which I would call a generation one geroscience drug, meaning it's kind of the first generation of interventions that have come out of the science of aging that we're pretty confident can modulate the biology of aging. Certainly a laboratory animals, I guess we don't know yet in people, although there's some accumulating data. So first of all, it's not a miracle drug. We're not talking about fountain of youth stuff here, right? Even in mice, you can get up to about a 30% increase in lifespan from rapamycin treatment, but it also, it doesn't just affect lifespan. It also seems to delay most, maybe all of the functional declines of, of aging in most, maybe all tissues and organs. And in at least a few cases, you can actually reverse functional declines. And those are shown in red here. So the heart, the immune system, the ovary, and the oral cavity, there's now really good data that if you take an old mouse where there's already been functional declines, you start the treatment with rapamycin, within about four to 10 weeks, you can actually see a restoration of function in those systems back to something that looks more like a youthful state, which is pretty exciting when you're thinking translationally about maybe taking this out of the lab and into the real world. The other thing that's important is it works in mice, even when you start in middle age, the mouse equivalent of a 60, 70 year old mouse, you still get most, maybe all of the benefits. So this seems like a pretty good candidate to start asking whether or not rapamycin has any of these effects in the real world. Kind of a weird thing that happened, but this is a study from my lab at the University of Washington, where we also asked the question, what would the effect be from just a single treatment with rapamycin for three months? So very simple experiment. 20-month-old mice, that's the equivalent of about 60 years old, give them rapamycin or a vehicle, a placebo for 12 weeks, and then stop everything, put them back on the shelf, and just let them live out the rest of their lives. And it turns out that that three-month treatment with rapamycin is enough to increase remaining life expectancy by about 60%, which, you know, is that a big number, small number? I don't know. It's interesting that the absolute magnitude of lifespan extension in this case is longer than the length of time the animal saw the drug. So that's kind of biologically interesting to think about. Obviously, we don't know if this would translate through to people or dogs. If it did, that would be about two to three years for a typical seven-year-old dog or about two decades for a typical 50-year-old woman. 
Okay, so potentially pretty significant impact on life expectancy in older dogs and older people. So we're actually testing this in pet dogs living with their owners as part of a project called the Dog Aging Project. And the clinical trial is called Triad, Test of Rapamycin in Aging Dogs. If anybody's interested, the website is dogagingproject.org. Your dog doesn't have to be in the clinical trial to be part of the Dog Aging Project. This is actually a larger longitudinal study of aging. We have about 47,000 dogs and owners in the study now. But 580 of those dogs will participate in this double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled veterinary clinical trial. We do have a site in Seattle, also Washington State, and several other sites. So this will be a three-year trial, and we are powered to detect 15% change in lifespan. We are also looking at a whole bunch of health span metrics to really try to understand, does rapamycin affect longevity and health span in pet dogs? And what about people? So we don't know. There's a bunch of interesting data. I don't have time to take you through it all, but we also just recently published a study where we collected survey data from people who'd been using rapamycin off-label because they thought that it might have effects on health span. And we compared them to people who'd never used rapamycin. And there were, again, there's a lot of weaknesses with this kind of a study, a lot of caveats, but there were some interesting things that came out of that. We looked at side effects and compared the rapamycin users against the non-users, asked them, in the last three months, have you experienced any of these? And we gave them one by one, 44 different things. Only one thing was more common in the rapamycin users, and that was mouth sores. That actually makes sense. That's the most common side effect in people who've been using rapamycin for its clinical indication, which is to prevent organ transplant rejection. Six other side effects were different, but they were all lower in the rapamycin user group, which is interesting. There's also an apparent, at least statistically significant, reduction in moderate and severe COVID-19 infections among the people who'd used rapamycin continuously throughout their COVID-19 infection. No difference in risk of infection, but in severity. And again, that fits pretty well with the preclinical data in mice and the effects of rapamycin at rejuvenating immune function in mice. So potentially interesting. So this is an example of a generation one geroscience drug. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about what does this mean for, for us today, right? And I should have said this at the beginning. I know this is a men's health forum, but aging is like, it doesn't care whether you're a man or a woman. I mean, there are differences for sure. Don't get me wrong. But everybody is affected by the biology of aging. This is just as much for women as it is for men. So how do we get something towards optimal health spans for everyone? And that's kind of what I'm doing now in my next iteration of my career. And that's the goal of OptiSpan. Can we create tools that will help enable this shift from 20th century medicine to 21st century medicine? And can we scale them in a way that will really impact a lot of people? I already talked about how I believe that medicine today is largely reactive disease care and that there's a better way and that the biology of aging needs to be part of that. And that we have some ways to modify that. And I think this graphic is meant to illustrate the idea that if you had health on the y-axis and age on the x-axis, most people get sick before they need to. And I think we have an opportunity. I don't know that we're going to be able to robustly increase human lifespan, but I think we know some ways to pretty dramatically improve human health span. And maybe when we get to the second generation geroscience interventions, we'll be able to do both. We'll be able to push out that lifespan, maximum lifespan, towards something closer to what the human species maximum lifespan is, we believe, which is around 120 years. But I certainly don't want to give the impression that we know how to do that today.
So most important, what should you do now? I wish I had a sort of magic, simple answer for you. There is no magic, simple answer. So I'm gonna tell you what I think. Number one, Matt's longevity rule. Number one, if you wanna live a long time, don't die. That's really important. But once we get beyond that, what can you do? So I think that there's some relatively low hanging fruit here in terms of more comprehensive baseline diagnostics that probably everybody should be getting, but you're not. And so those would include things like comprehensive blood panels. Everyone should probably be getting, especially when you get into your 40s and 50s and, and older, comprehensive advanced lipids, hormones, omega fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, all of those things are really low hanging fruit that most people don't get that are actionable. Body composition, DEXA. So I think there's a small number of these things, advanced cancer screening that we can implement now for a lot of people for not a lot of money that could have a big impact. And I think that's really important. I also think genetics has become a lot more powerful in the last five years. I think more advanced polygenic risk score analyses are available pretty easily and that can give you some insights into risks that you are at risk for that you should be paying attention to. And when you combine them with these other diagnostics, can you give you a pretty powerful insight into your own biology. There are some, what people call biological aging clocks out there, some tests that you can actually get that are supposed to measure your biological age. I don't have a lot of faith in those at this point because I don't think they're particularly actionable. So personally, for the average consumer, I would spend more time on the biomarkers that we know versus these sort of new fancy biomarkers that we don't really know what to do with. I think finding a good doc is really important. And, you know, there are a lot of docs out there, primary care, who have a repair shop mentality. This gets back to this idea that we only fix it once you're sick. If you can find a doc that's got more of a prevention mentality and is open to these ideas, I think that's really, really important. Obviously, lifestyle matters. Everybody's got their pillars, their number of pillars. I like four and I like active words. So, you know, diet, eat, exercise, move, good quality sleep, sleep, and then this sort of more nebulous thing, which is how well are we connected with other people and with the world around us? And obviously those things, again, are all important and they do impact the biology of aging. And then I'd also say, I don't know how many of you have sort of explored the longevity wellness influencer world. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So I think finding credible sources is really important. The one person I really respect is Peter Atia. It's pretty intense. I don't know if any of you have followed Peter's work, but I mean, I don't agree with Peter on everything, but he, he really does his homework. And so if you're going to pick one person to sort of digest their content for the purposes of improving your own health, I think Peter's a really great source. And we're going to try to do some stuff in that space. So keep your eyes open for the OptiSpan YouTube channel, and maybe we can give you some content that will be helpful to you. Okay. So I think that's it. Yep. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for the, the opportunity to speak. So I'll be offering some health tips on important topics. Matt touched on a number of them. One of the best diet sources is free to you all, and it's online. It's titled The Dietary Guidelines for Americans. It's the 2020 to 2025 edition. It's unbiased. It's rewritten every five years, and it's by dietitians who are experts. It has no commercial bias. So The Dietary Guidelines for Americans. It's the best diet book you can find. The government pays for it. It's free.
It's also on episode four, the original guide to men's health. We have Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy with Marion Neuhauser, PhD, RD from the Hutch. Our next speaker is Mara Hyman. We'll review sexual health, ED, and testosterone. Dr. Heyman is an assistant professor, Department of Urology, UW School of Medicine, and the director of male sexual and reproductive health, Puget Sound VA. Mara, thank you. I think you just uh, arrow. Thank you so much to everyone who can attend tonight, and thank you for the invitation, Rich, and to the support of the Washington State Urologic Society. In terms of my talk, I'll be continuing Matt's talk, and this is all about sex longevity. So we'll just kind of keep it on moving. Just a little bit about me. I was born and raised in Chicago. My education began at the University of Michigan, where I majored in biology and art history. Excuse me. I continued my schooling at the Rush Medical College in Chicago, and then did my urologic training in Loyola, also in Chicago, and then found my way out here to Seattle for fellowship. I returned to Chicago and then rejoined the faculty at UW back in 2021, and it's been a great time being back in the Pacific Northwest. So to get into the heart of the matter, what we'll talk about tonight is answering these questions. First, what is erectile dysfunction? Why does ED happen to men? How do we restore function? And then what's the role of testosterone for men? And then just kind of briefly talking about some important safety considerations for testosterone replacement. And I asked Rich at the beginning if it was okay if I used the term erection numerous times in the temple, and he assured me that that was okay. So buckle up. So erectile dysfunction is defined as the persistent inability to achieve or maintain erections that are hard enough for satisfactory sexual activity. And is this really important? Should we really be talking about this and focusing on it? It's obviously part of social media and sort of culture, but is it really important? And I would say it just really depends on who you ask. There are certainly multiple worldwide studies that show that sexually active people have happier and more fulfilling lives and may have better functioning relationships. And so when there is sexual dysfunction, if we can provide restoration, though we know that people overall have a higher quality of life. So this, in my opinion, is important. Obviously, this is what I do with my career, and patients certainly care. So how does an erection work? I just want to sort of review some of the anatomy before we dive into further discussion about you know, treatment and diagnosis. This is a cross-section of the penis on the left. What you'll notice is that there are two paired chambers. These are the corpora cavernosa or the erectile bodies. These are the stretchy chambers that fill with blood to give a man an erection. The tube on the bottom is the urethra, and then around these chambers there are some nerves and other blood vessels. But what I really want to call out is the two paired blood vessels that are in the middle of those chambers. So those two small red circles, those are the cavernosal arteries or the penile arteries. Those I'll talk about in more detail in a few slides. And obviously Dr. Yang will address arterial function in his talk as well, because we, you know, this where it's all heart health is penile health. And so we'll kind of dive into how important that is. But it's not just all about blood flow. Erectile machinery is actually very, very complex and requires the sort of concerted effort of five different systems of the human body. First is blood flow, is vascular health. 
Second is healthy penile tissue, making sure there's no scar tissue in the penis that's restrictive. Third is neurologic function, and not just nerves in terms of the sensation of the penis, but the actual nerves that are sending the message to bring blood flow to the penis. So this is the neurotransmitters that allow blood to come into the penis, not just sensory nerves. I will talk about testosterone and the role of testosterone in maintaining erections. And then something that we don't often talk about is the mental health aspect of erections. So erections are truly a product of our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and digest nervous system. It's the opposite of being in fight and flight mode. So if you're anxious about performing in the bedroom, if you're anxious about losing your job or, you know, driving the kids to school the next day. These are all reasons that men can lose their erection or have difficulty maintaining erections. So how common is ED? It really depends, once again, on age. In the younger age group, there are about 20% of men who experience ED, and this becomes more significant as men age. What you see in this graph is a representation of the youngest men age 40 to 45 in the top bar, and less than 50% of men experience ED, but it is still significant at about 30%. As men get older and we go down the graph, you see men age, men in their 70s, the vast majority have some element of ED, and about 50% have moderate to complete erectile dysfunction. So age is obviously a factor here as well. More specifically, we can break this down into this pie graph, and we see that about 40% of ED cases are attributed to vascular causes. So that's that blood flow, and we'll talk about that in detail in the next few slides. So just mentioning diabetes, typically when I give this talk, I spend a couple slides talking about the impact of diabetes on erectile function, but for the sake of time, I just want to mention that it is very significantly impactful on erectile function, and that's because diabetes impacts the blood vessels, the nerves, and that penile tissue. So it really is kind of a, a three-hit phenomenon, and about 50% of men with diabetes have ED, so very high proportion. What's the pathophysiology of cardiovascular disease and ED? How are they related? We know that they both share many of the same risk factors. So things like tobacco smoking, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, not moving around a lot, using alcohol or illicit drugs, extra psychosocial stress, and then of course, medical comorbidities. Things like high blood pressure, diabetes, and high cholesterol all contribute to damage to the blood vessels in our bodies called the endothelium. You'll hear a lot about that in our next talk. This inherently damages those small penile arteries that I mentioned. And that's why we think of ED as the canary in the coal mine. Men with erectile dysfunction have a much higher risk of premature mortality. So it's about 1.7 times the risk of premature mortality for men with ED versus those without. And cardiovascular disease-related mortality is much higher also in men with ED versus those without, about 1.4 times. And usually, ED is a precursor to cardiovascular disease. So that's how, why we think of it as the canary in the coal mine. And to look at the arterial anatomy throughout the body, what we know is that the penile arteries, as I mentioned, are about one millimeter in diameter. And that is in contrast to the larger arteries that Dr. Yang will talk about, the coronary arteries. They're about four millimeters in diameter. 
The carotid arteries that are the primary arteries that feed the brain that are responsible for when they're clogged, when men and women can experience TIAs and strokes, those are even larger, and so on and so forth. And plaque that can impact the lining of those arteries can demonstrate symptoms at about 50%. And Dr. Yang, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But what we know is obviously if the penile artery is the smallest of these, it's going to be the first one to be impacted. So that's why ED can show up first. So if you know a young man with ED, I do recommend a thorough evaluation, and I'll talk a little bit about that right here. So how do we make this diagnosis? ED diagnosis is largely related on history. A history is when you go see your doctor and they ask you questions about how long this has been going on. When are you experiencing it? Is it with a partner or just when you're alone or both? Usually we use validated questionnaires. The main one I use is the IIEF or the SHIN score. It's a five-question survey that allows us to understand how severe your erectile dysfunction is. I do recommend using blood work, and that usually starts out with a hormonal screen that's testosterone, as well as a general lipid panel, glucose. If you have a regular doctor, a primary care provider, they are typically ordering those already, but something that I would see if you haven't seen a primary care doctor in your lifetime or in a long time. There isn't a very specific test we can do for diagnosis of ED called a penile Doppler ultrasound. That's actually looking at the blood flow parameters inside the penis. It's not required for a diagnosis, but it can help us guide treatment sometimes. And so let's talk a little bit about treatment. Well, we start out with suggesting lifestyle modifications. And then the rest of the things here are things that I educate patients on whenever they come see me, just right off the bat. We do talk about sex therapy and the role for for sex therapy, not just in young men, but across the age span. We talk about using oral medications, vacuum devices, urethral suppositories, injections, and implants. And I'll talk about these in detail. But what's important to know about all of these treatments is that I have a few guidelines before we even dive into the treatments. First things first, we want to optimally manage diseases that prevent the onset of ED or to reverse ED. That can include things like changing your medications, getting better glycemic control, or suggesting lifestyle modifications. These are things like diet, exercise, all of the things that Matt just talked about with regard to lifespan and health span. Third, we always start out with oral medications. There are very few reasons why men can't try the oral medications. Those are typically things that have to do with medication interactions, but these should be offered as first-line therapy for ED. And then fourth, there are limitations to all of these treatments, and these include that there's no guarantee that one thing will be effective, and so there is a requirement for some trial and error. Second, there should be no significant impact on sensation, ejaculation, or fertility. And then third, it should go without saying, but I always remind folks, we still need to practice safe and consensual sex. So let's start out with the oral medications. And I'm just going to kind of briefly go through the options that I just mentioned and mostly just rely on talking about their advantages and disadvantages. So the pills. These have been around since the 1990s. Most people are familiar with the little blue pill. It really did revolutionize our job as urologists and our job as physicians 
because it allowed us to have the first oral treatment for erectile dysfunction. Before this, there were only injections and implants. So those actually came before the pills. Some of the advantages for pills are that you can use it on demand only. You don't need to take this pill every single day. Second, it's simple to prescribe. So you should be able to get this from a primary care provider. You don't need to see a specialist or a urologist to receive this prescription. And third, it's simple to administer. We've all taken pills. It's just like any other pill. Some of the limitations are that these pills don't work for everyone. There are certainly men who have had radical pelvic surgery, who've had radiation, who may have advanced diabetes, in whom pills may not be effective. And that's what I mentioned about the trial and error. There are also some limits on spontaneity. So these pills take about an hour to get working in the system. And that means that you do have to take it in advance. You can't just be in the mood. And by the time you've taken the pill, the moment may have passed. So that is some of those, the limitation on spontaneity. There are also some possible side effects. This is a table that shows in the left column, sildenafil, which is generic Viagra, and in the right column, Tadalafil, which is generic Cialis. Far and away, the most common side effect is headache, and that occurs in about one in eight men, and it kind of depends on just your specific reaction to it, but also the dose that you take. Facial flushing can also occur, and then there are some also idiosyncratic responses to each medication, like more muscle pain with Cialis and more visual disturbances with sildenafil, which is Viagra. When we move on from pills and we talk about the intrapenile therapies, there are really there are two therapies that are at the heart of the intrapenile therapies. And the first is a vacuum erection device. This is a cylinder that fits over the penis and it pulls blood into the penis by suction. And the use of constriction bands can allow the trapping of blood. Some of the benefits here are, again, it just is used on demand. There are no systemic side effects and it mimics a natural erection. The main disadvantages being it's cumbersome to use and it can cause some discomfort or the feeling of numbness like when your limb falls asleep if you leave it on for too long. I mentioned intracavernosal injections. These are shots that are delivered by a patient to the penis about 10 minutes before sex. And these can be very effective in many patients. It does mimic a natural erection and only has to be used on demand. But it does require training, it requires follow-up, and requires dosing adjustments over time. When used for a long time, it can lead to some scarring in the penis, and bruising can occur just like even receiving a flu shot. The last thing about intercavernosal injections is that not all things you can overdo, there can't be too much of a good thing, where if you use too much of this injection, you can have a priapism, which is an erection that is truly an emergency and painful. And, you know, we try to avoid that by having that training period. So if those aren't working or if none of those are appealing to a patient, we do have another option, which is a penile implant. Penile implants were approved much before Viagra in 1973, so 50 years ago this year. And far and away, what we use in the United States is an inflatable type, which has three components. It's a hydraulic system that is comprised of cylinders, a pump, and a reservoir, where the pump in the scrotum allows fluid to transfer between the reservoir and the cylinders that are in the penis. So this is placed during a one to two hour surgery. It gives back spontaneity to a man, and it is completely concealed and natural appearing.
Some of the benefits here are that we have significant clinical data on the procedures and results, and there's been a lot of evolution with the devices because they've been around for so long. We know that there's a very high patient satisfaction rate, and it puts men back in the driver's seat. It gives them spontaneity with their partner. It allows a man to determine the longevity of the erection, and again, that just affords spontaneity. Some of the disadvantages, of course, this is a surgical procedure. There's pain with postoperative healing. And then specific to having an implant, there are three real risks. Infection, the fact that the device can break down as it's a hydraulic system, although these last on average more than 10 years. And of course, just injury during surgery. The last thing I'll say, this is irreversible. So you really want to be set that this is the right modality for you before you embark on this surgery. So those are most of the treatment options. I want to briefly touch on testosterone, even though that's also a big topic on its own. Testosterone is the main male steroid hormone. Its production is triggered by brain signals, and then it's made primarily in the testicle. It's also the precursor to estrogen, which is important for sexuality and important for men as well as women. Testosterone is involved in sexual function, reproductive function. It's important for bone mineral density some of the metabolic pathways like muscle mass and fat metabolism, and of course, mental health as well. How do we diagnose low T? That can be challenging, to be honest. Many of the symptoms can be vague, things like low energy, low motivation, you know, not having the same workouts in the gym. These things can all cross over with other things like obstructive sleep apnea, depression, etc. Decreased sex drive is pretty specific to low T, though. In terms of the diagnosis I use, it does require blood tests. I do also test many hormones, not just testosterone. A baseline prostate PSA is indicated for a man based on his age. And then we want to rule out those other causes, things like sleep apnea, depression, etc. This just briefly talks about different treatment options, which there are many. And then I want to just briefly cover the controversies in testosterone, because there are some potential benefits, things like improved sex desire and function, increased bone mineral density, improved mood. Men feel good when they're on testosterone in general, but that doesn't mean it's right for everybody. The risks are several. There are general side effects to being on testosterone that are numerous. And then there have been some controversial trials that have come out regarding the impact on cardiovascular health. We know that testosterone can exacerbate sleep apnea. And there is also a lot of controversy, although, you know, the growing preponderance of literature demonstrates that TRT can be safe in men who have had prostate, a history of prostate cancer. And there are implications for men who desire fertility. One study I want to call out, which is hot off the press from July of this year, is a level one clinical trial, a randomized controlled trial of testosterone in about over 5,000 men who have had pre-existing cardiovascular disease or are high risk for cardiovascular disease. These men were randomized to TRT or placebo. And what the study showed was that there was no increased risk in major adverse cardiovascular events, so things like heart attacks although there was an increase in other findings like AFib, pulmonary embolism, and kidney injury. So certainly needs more data, but this is the highest quality data that we have so far in this space. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. 
We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.